Beloved, the first university that was founded in the New World, in the New America, in the 1630s was the New College in Massachusetts. It became known as Harvard. About a century later, uh, Jonathan Edwards, probably or possibly the greatest theologian America has ever produced, was her president. Uh, the second college was William and Mary. Then came a college which would become known later as Yale. And then the fourth college, the fourth university, was the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton. All four of these colleges, all four of these universities, were founded by Christians. And I say that in the current context, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, it is sad, it is tragic, but that was the history of them. During the Revolutionary War, the president of the then College of New Jersey, again, which became Princeton, was a man named John Witherspoon. And in the context of the Revolutionary War and the men and women seeking the liberty, the emancipation from the fetters of Britain, Witherspoon said, quote, the greatest friend to American liberty is the one who adheres to and supports and practices pure and undefiled religion, end quote. Now, that does beg the question, what is pure religion as God would define it? What is undefiled religion? Good questions to ask. And with that in mind, beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Our passage this morning is verses 15 through 19. And the text that we have before us here towards the end, this is the second to last sermon that we'll take out of this magnificent epistle. The text we have today pulls together many of the great themes that we've been covering as we go through this wonderful letter. Beloved, listen as I read the word of God, the text that God has for us here this morning. Hebrews 13 and verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, we know that the word of God is truth. Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, speaking to God the Father, thy word is truth. That is God saying, in essence, my word is truth. This book is very, the very definition of truth, uh, a veracity. Veracity is the adherence to, the application, the faithful outworking of this truth as God reveals it to us in Scripture. And beloved, in our text this morning, we have three veracities that God lays out for us. The veracity of pure worship, of profitable submission, and of prayerful fellowship. And the intent here is the same intent. The intent of this passage is the same intent really that has been kind of a summary purpose of this entire book that you and I would enter continually within the veil 
that we would go right here this morning and even as we will see, you will go tomorrow in your workplace, in your home, in your school, into the very presence of God as part of your heavenly worship and also that we would go outside the camp as last week we saw in the preceding verses, that we would go away from and out from our old way of thinking, our old religion, our old worldview, our old vices and sins that were what captured our life, and that we would go again afresh to Christ outside the camp, within the veil and outside the camp. A great phrase that really sums up certainly this passage, chapter 13, and wouldn't be a bad uh, series title for the entire walk through the book of Hebrews. Beloved, the author's grand exhortation here to his original audience of Jewish believers, God's grand command here to you and to me is that we would persevere in the faith, that we would continue the race. Don't turn your back on Christ. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't, even more to the point here, seek another mediator, another way to enter into the presence of God himself. And even the imagery from the old covenant of going outside the camp. Don't go back, the original audience, back to Judaism because rabbinical Judaism expelled the Lord of glory. That's all part of what God has for us here this morning. So let's look and unpack this first veracity in verses 15 and 16, namely pure worship. What is worship? What is pure worship? To set the stage, let me remind you, or perhaps you're not familiar with the story of Jesus. Jesus met a Samaritan woman by a well. It's recorded in John chapter 4. And Jesus told the woman that a day will come. There was animosity and there was a chasm and schism and hostility between the Samaritans and between Israel. And Jesus told the woman the day will come when people will not worship on this mountain which the mountain they're on was Mount Gerizim, which was uh, representative of Samaritan worship. And they will not worship in Jerusalem. That's Israeli worship. The point he was getting there is there will be a time when the physical temple, the physical altars, the physical shrines will be worthless. For the original audience, again, Jewish believers, at the time of this writing, the temple was still there. There was still an altar. There were still priests that were offering Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrifices. And what he's saying is for that audience of Jewish men and women in Christ, the temple has effectively disappeared. The altar has effectively disappeared. The sacrifices of priests all disappeared, all gone. And so, a reasonable question that one of those 2,000-year-old Jewish believers would ask, and it's a reasonable question for you and me, whether Gentile or Jew in Christ, is how do I, well, do I offer a sacrifice? Is there a sacrifice to be offered, and how do I offer the sacrifice? And what the author does here is say, here you go. Look at the text, verse 15, right at the beginning. Through him then... Through him, a little prepositional phrase. It's thrust forward at the beginning for emphasis. It's the author is saying that this, even this preposition is incredibly important. I mean, from a surface level, we might think, well, through him, by him, for him, you know, in him, it's all kind of saying the same thing. Well, 
No. <laughs> I mean, there, to be sure, again, there's commonality. There's some certainly overlap. But what the author is saying here, understand this, mark this, is that in this context of what God is communicating to you and me right now is through him is better than by him. It's better than for him. And even, again, in the immediate context, through him here is better than in him. Because what he's saying is this is the role of Christ as our mediator, as our sole mediator. The context, the imagery here is that you and I right here, right now, and even again tomorrow in your workplace, school, neighborhood, you will be going into the very throne room of God, into the presence of God through Christ. That is what he is driving home here. That's the same thinking that Paul had when he wrote to young Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, he said there's one God and one mediator between man and God, between men and God, the man Jesus Christ. He is the sole mediator. It is through him then that you and I are to continue on with what you see there in verse 15. Therefore, let, or through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So that answers the question, yes, we do offer a sacrifice. We are to offer a sacrifice continually. And it's fascinating because he's continuing the very strong priestly imagery that we've seen through this whole letter. But what's amazing here is he's placing you and me in the role of the priest. He's not talking about the old covenant priests that were still offering sacrifices at that time. He's not talking about that mystery man from the Old Testament, Melchizedek, who met with Abraham. He's not even here talking about the great high priest, Jesus Christ in his role. He's talking about you and me in the role of a priest bringing a sacrifice to God. For the original audience, the animal sacrifices, even though they were still being given, they were at the cross rendered obsolete, forever obsolete, by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And what we have here is the author is telling us that by virtue of that once-for-all sacrifice, even flowing from the occasional sacrifices of the Old Covenant, you and I now offer a continual sacrifice to God. We may enter in the throne room of God and offer a sacrifice of praise. And beloved, because we may offer this, we should offer this. We must offer this if we are to follow him as our Lord and Savior. And now we can, again, kind of peel the onion back another layer and say, well, how do we? Okay, now we understand we are to continue to offer sacrifices. How do we offer a sacrifice of praise? And what we have in verses 15 and 16, we can kind of think of these two verses as a summary, as a New Covenant, New Testament summary of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, entire book of Leviticus. The entire book of Leviticus was where God laid out for the nation of Israel how they are to approach God and then how they are to walk God in the ceremonial system. Well, what God does here is he consolidates that into two verses for you and me in Christ. And, but for the original audience, again, they, what, what the author wants them to know is they're not limited to animal sacrifices. They're not limited to a few annual feasts. 
They're not limited to those occasions when they're in Jerusalem. This is something they could do always continuously, and you and me as well. And beloved, because Jesus Christ rent the veil asunder, because he ripped apart that huge curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, uh, by virtue of even of the exhortation and the encouragement the author of Hebrews gives us back in chapter 10, verse 19, that we can enter into the throne of grace with confidence in Christ because he has done that. That is what we are to be about. And it is not limited to this hour and 15 minutes that we meet here, or plus, depending on how verbose the guy up here gets. It's not limited to one day a week. It is something we do continually. And we can also ask, what about praise, a sacrifice of praise? Beloved, praise is what you and I do in Christ all the time, in our regular lives, in the midst even of the filthiness of the world. It's what we do in our regular lives, and it's what we do, what you and I do here in our corporate praise and worship. As we come together into this glad company praising God, and we are taken into the heavenly worship corporately together, it is this, and it is that. It's all of that. And even when we think of the word worship service, or the phrase worship service, that's what we call this hour and 15 minutes we do here. There's a tension there. Because we use that for economy of words, and that's a good description. I, myself, when I'm speaking at a little more length, I'll talk about this as our corporate praise and worship. The point being, we want to be very careful to not somehow think that this hour and 15 minutes just on Sunday morning is the extent of worship. No, it extends to everything we do in Christ. So we could put it this way, bottom line, praise and worship, beloved, are as much for you and for me are as much about Monday morning as they are about Sunday morning. They are as much about Wednesday morning or Friday morning as they are about this morning. Now, as we kind of expand our look more at this pure worship in verses 15 and 16, do you remember what Jesus said was the greatest commandment? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment is you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, verse 15, our praise of, our sacrifice of praise of our lips in verse 15 flows from that greatest commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our sacrifice, your sacrifice of praise with your lives in verse 16 flows along the lines of loving your neighbor as yourself. And even as we see here, the neighbor, to be sure, we're concerned with the neighbor, our neighbor in our neighborhood. We're concerned with our neighbor in our cubicle or our office or our classmate in the seat. But the context here is the same context we've had all the way through the letter and in chapter 13, the neighbor who is sitting right next to you or the man or woman, the brother or sister that's on the other side of this room of this worship center. So, in verse 15, and the rest of verse 15, beloved, what we have here is your sacrifice of praise with your lips. You see, it's impossible when we think of our Christian privilege. It is impossible to think of our Christian privilege without thinking of our Christian duty. And it's strong duties. It's tender duties. It is our continual Christian duty to offer spiritual worship to God, the kind of worship, the kind of service that engages 
our minds, that stirs our hearts and moves our lips, flows from our lips. Look at the rest of verse 15. So we are told, commanded to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, then the rest here, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Beloved, what flows from your lips, your lips speak what your heart believes. This flows from belief to behavior. This flows from conscience to even conduct, but here with what comes from our mouth. And the author is quoting specifically from Hosea chapter 14, verse 2. Hosea, in chapter 14, he is calling, God is through Hosea, is commanding the nation of Israel to return to him. And there's a mighty verse in verse 2 of chapter 14 where Hosea says, Take words with you and return to Yahweh. Return to the Lord so that we may present the fruit of our lips. That's the source of Hebrews 13, 15. It's the same dynamic as God also said through Isaiah. In Isaiah 57, verse 19, talking about creating the praise of the lips. Now, here... The New American Standard translates this giving thanks or give thanks to his name. So the fruit of our lips is giving thanks to his name. Uh, the word give thanks to, it's the Greek word homologeo. It means to literally say the same thing. We normally see this word translated as confess. And the, what he's saying here, the grammar here says this is the fruit of lips continually confessing his name. This is continually confessing the name of Christ. This is continually giving thanks. Continual thanksgiving is what the author is saying. So that is the sacrifice of praise of your lips. But now also when we go to verse 16, we accompany this with the sacrifice of praise of your lives. Because, beloved, praise has a practical side. He adds, God adds to the sacrifice of confession the sacrifice of kindness, lips and lives, words and works. I, in my studies this week, I came across a phrase that I'd never seen before that I really like. The phrase, it goes like this. Thanksgiving is good. Thanks living is better. Again, thanksgiving is good. Thanks living is better. Both are necessary. And what we have in verse 16 is we could understand as thanks living. Look at what he says. He says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing. Uh, this do not neglect. We saw that even earlier in chapter 13, verse 2, where the author encouraged us, God encourages us to not neglect. Do not neglect showing hospitality. Literally, do not neglect loving strangers in the context of the church. But this whole idea, this whole theme of doing good and sharing, it's common certainly in the New Testament, but it's really common through all of Scripture. But just a few examples in the New Testament. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter wrote, as living stones, you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, watch this, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again, there's that beautiful little preposition, through Jesus Christ. He is the avenue by which we can come in and offer up these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to the sovereign, omnipotent, perfectly holy creator God of the universe. Or Paul, when Paul was writing to, writing to the church in Rome, Romans 12, 1, 
He says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Again, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Or James, that brother of Jesus. James 1.27, he said, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And pure and undefiled religion, that's actually the title of the sermon this morning. And this is James 127 is the source of John Witherspoon, the president of the College of New Jersey quote that I read before. So, beloved, there's nothing new about this. This is what has been in the place from the beginning, and this is what God calls you and me to. And by way of application, I'll go to another. And and by the way, in the sermon this morning, I'm going to have a few more quotes than normal from dead people. Um, I kind of have verse 7 of remember the leaders that went before you in my veins. Uh, and, and this is a dead person who's in Scripture, so that's there. But even outside of Scripture, I will do that as we come. But by way of application, let's go to Solomon. In Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25, I'll read this for you in a moment. I think the immediate way which we would most easily understand this has to do with financial resources. But, beloved, when we think of serving, when we think of giving, when we think of opening things up, it's not just at all, and it's certainly not even first and foremost about our checkbook. Uh, the resources that we are speaking of, that God is speaking of through Solomon in Proverbs 11 is our time, our resources, our talents, our giftedness. More to the point, more to the foundation and base, our attention and our devotion. And what Solomon does here is he uses a farming and agrarian illustration to talk about the blessing that comes from one who gives and shares and pours out for the Lord. Verse 24, Proverbs 11, there's one who scatters yet increases all the more. And there's one who withholds what's justly due, but it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Again, beloved, this is the same call from God from Solomon, even under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, Peter, Paul, James, and now the author of Hebrews. But back in verse 16, the word sharing is the word koinonia. Uh, It's normally translated and understood as fellowship. This is the fellowship of the saints. So in the same way that the strangers of verse 2 that we are commanded to remember to love and the prisoners of verse 3, the context there here in Hebrews 13 are strangers, Christians we don't know, and Christian prisoners who are in prison because of their stand for the faith. So also the context here is the church, the local church. For you and for me, unless you're a visitor, Santan Bible Church. And it's the same priority that the Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, I love what Paul does here because Paul brings out the fact that you and I should be generous. We should be gracious to all people, to unsaved people, coworkers, neighbors, families, but there is a priority. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 6, verse 10. He says, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So again, there is the priority. But back in our text at the end of verse 16 here in Hebrews 13, 
the author says, for, he gives a reason, for, with such sacrifices, with this kind of sacrifices of praise, of lips and lives, God is pleased. He is pleased. The sacrifices of lips and lives, the sacrifice of praise of words and works. And to think God is pleased, there is no greater reward for the daughter of God, for the son of God, than for the father to be pleased. This is the same language, the same picture. When we think of the picture gallery of Hebrews chapter 11, the portrait of spiritual greatness that God laid out before us, he spoke of Enoch, who was one of two men in history that were taken up to God without suffering physical death. And in Hebrews 11 verse 5, you may remember the words, by faith Enoch obtained the witness that before being taken up he was pleasing to God. Again, beloved brother and sister, there is no greater joy, no greater goal to seek than the pleasure of the Father. And when we seek the pleasure of the Father, we ourselves will realize pleasure. We'll have the supernatural joy made more real in our lives by virtue of that. The peace of Christ, which we already have if we're in Christ, will guard and umpire, so to speak, our hearts even that much more. And it's the same God, the same way of salvation, the same ultimate standard. To be sure, there are strong distinctions between the old and the new. And some of them are even coming out here in our text. At the same time, it's the same God, the same way of salvation, and the same demand from truth on the inner man or the inner woman. Micah 6 verse 8. He's told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Uh, The Reformed theologian Vance Havner, in his book Hearts of Fire, said this, quote, The only service that counts is faithful service. True faith shows up in faithfulness. Watch this. Not everyone can sing or preach, but everyone, all in Christ, can be faithful. Faithful. That's the essence of true worship. And when we think of the pleasure of the Father, before we leave that topic, if you think of an earthly father, if you want to do something nice for a father, uh, be, you want to do, do something nice to your father, you want to be nice to a father, be nice to his children. Do something nice for his children, for his grandchildren. That's the same kind of picture that Christ spoke of in Matthew 25. He was talking about the king. There were subjects of the king that the king told that they had basically visited him. They cared for him, and they had done these wonderful things to him. And they said, well, when did they, we do this to you? And the king responded. He said, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did these things to the least of my children, you did it for me. Beloved, that is the goal, to hear well done from the Father. That's the motivation for you and for me and the final word on this pure worship. And that takes us to the second veracity that we have in verse 17, which is profitable submission. You see, beloved, God knows what you and I need. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus, but we are still trapped in this body of death. We're still confined in the flesh, and what we need are teachers, guides, leaders. And in fact, as The author closes this letter in chapter 13. He frames this entire chapter around leaders in verse 4, excuse me, verse 7, verse 17 here, and then verse 
24. We were told to remember those who led you in verse 7. Remember, remember the past ones. Now he tells us, obey your present ones. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders, your guides, and submit to them. Uh, so the ones here, the specific leaders he's speaking of here, are probably the successors to the ones who, back in verse 7, have already gone home to be with the Lord, either by virtue of martyrdom or through natural causes. And he says, obey and submit. Same thing, two different words, much overlap. Obey has more a connotation of persuading. Uh, submit means to give way to or to yield. And both submit and obey are standing orders. God, our general, is telling us here that we are to continually submit and to obey our leaders. So a good student of the word or even a common reasonable person even outside the church would say, well, how do we qualify this? Is God commanding Christians here to blind obedience? Is there a scope to this authority? And if so, what is it? And what's beautiful about the Word of God is the answer is very clear, and we don't have to go any farther than back to verse 7 to answer this. Remember what he said when he was saying, remember the leaders before, those who spoke the Word of God to you. So when God commands you and me to obey and to submit to our leaders, what he's saying is insofar as your leaders teach you the Word of God, they're to be obeyed. John Calvin had a great quote about this, talking about the kind of leader that is being described here and the kind of leader that is not being described here. This is what Calvin said, quote, this is only those who faithfully exercise their office. But then he pivots and speaks of those of whom it's not writing. Those who have nothing except the title, and indeed those who abuse the title of pastor to destroy the church, deserve little reverence and even less trust. End quote. So, beloved, you and I, we are called to submit to what's taught, that is, from the Word of God. And to not do that is anarchy, is anarchy, is rebellion. Anarchy is a disastrous force in and of itself, and it, its most pernicious, evil, destructive sense is in the context of the church. John Chrysostom, the gold-mouthed expositor preacher from the early church, said this, Anarchy is an evil, the occasion of many calamities, and the source of disorder and confusion. Moreover, he continues, a person who doesn't obey his leader is like the one that has none, and perhaps even worse, end quote. Uh, do you remember Jesus? Jesus was mourning over Israel because they were like sheep without what? Sheep without a shepherd. That's, that's a horrible situation. It caused Jesus to mourn and to weep. But it's an even worse situation when a man or a woman have a godly, qualified leader that brings the word of God to bear to them and they disobey not the leader, but the God behind the leader, the word behind the leader. And beloved, as we continue with the rest of verse 17, we are reminded that our leaders, we have a weighty responsibility. Look at what he says at the end of verse 17. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, as those who have a stewardship entrusted to them by God. They keep watch over your soul. The root meaning of the word keep watch over means stay awake, chase away sleep. 
The point here is this is a constant watch. And to get an understanding or have an illustration of this, uh, we can think of the shepherds, the poor shepherds, the godly shepherds that an angel appeared to in Luke chapter 2. And after an angel appeared and gave the initial announcement of the birth of Jesus, the announcement that the Messiah who was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden is to be born, then a myriad of angels appeared all on the hills and in the valleys surrounding the shepherds. But in Luke 2.8, we read these words. There were shepherds staying out in the fields, and here's the illustration, and keeping watch over their flock by night. The constant watch, the caring watch, the shepherding watch, to lead, to feed, to care for, to protect. That's what the leaders of the church, the men to whom God entrusts the care of the church, have on their shoulders. Hugh Latimer, another dead guy, again flowing from remembering those who went before, those who led us before, verse 7. Hugh Latimer, he is one of the Oxford martyrs. He was burned alive at the stake by the bloody Queen Mary, along with Ridley and Cranmer. Uh, you may remember one of his more famous quotes. Before they were martyred, Latimer said to Ridley, he said, Ridley, be a man of good cheer. Be a man for, the, for this day they are lighting such a candle in England that will not be put out, as I trust shall never be put out. That's the probably most famous quote, but he had a lesser known quote about this dynamic of the kind of watchful, continual, loving shepherd and care of the leaders. He said this, quote, now these shepherds, and he's using the illustration even from Luke 2.8. Now these shepherds, I say, they watch the whole night. They attend upon their vocation. They do according to their calling. They keep their sheep. Here by these shepherds, I wish that clergymen, the curates, parsons, and vicars, the bishops, and all other spiritual persons would learn this lesson by virtue of these poor shepherds, which is this to abide by their flocks and by their sheep, to tarry among them, to be watchful over them, to feed their sheep with the food of God's word, to feed them both soul and body, end quote. And I love one element. I love many elements of that quote, but I love the element which is that they abide by their flocks and by their sheep. They tarry among them. But beloved, we love our brother believers and sisters in different churches and outside this church. But my priority, the priority of your elders, the priority of your deacons, the priority of Santan Bible Church is this local church. That is the focus and always will be to abide by the flock and by the sheep, to tarry among them. And one more thing to bring out here, beloved, understand this. The leadership of the New Testament church, the leadership of Santan Bible Church, the leadership of the New Testament church is not here responsible to the congregation. The leadership is responsible for the congregation. And understand this, the fact that we are, that we are not responsible to the congregation but for the congregation does not lighten the load of that responsibility. It makes it heavier because we are responsible for you to God. That is a far greater burden, a far more solemn responsibility. We have derived authority, not intrinsic authority. We, I have no authority over you whatsoever outside of what God clearly communicates in this book. That is the point. Isaiah 
62 verse 6, God says to the prophet, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. He used the same kind of imagery when he prophesied to the nation of Israel through Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3. And even here, he's again using this imagery from a watchman that would be stationed on a city. And the responsibility of the watchman was to look out and to watch and to guard. And if there is danger coming, to alert the people. And what he tells them here as he applies that spiritually to the people in Ezekiel chapter 3 was, watchmen, you watchmen over the flock, if you see danger coming and you don't warn the people, then I will require their blood from you. But if you do warn the people and they ignore it, then their blood, their sin is upon themselves. But there is a faithfulness here. There's a fidelity to duty. When uh, Pompeii, yeah, when Pompeii was destroyed by the eruption of Vesuvius, there were people, as the ash came down and destroyed the entire town, it froze people for, in essence, all time, uh, short time speaking, in their positions. People were found hidden away in dungeons or hidden away in inner recesses of homes. There were people that were found buried by the ash and frozen in upper chambers and lofty chambers of the wealthy. There was one guard, there was one sentinel that was found frozen, still standing, holding on to a spear. As Vesuvius was erupting, while the flood of ash came down and overwhelmed him, he stood faithfully at his post. And after a thousand years plus, he was found frozen for all time in fidelity of duty. Beloved, that is the great charge. Men, that's the great charge that we as leaders have within God's church because it's God's church. It's not our church. And, <clears throat> beloved, when biblical leadership is taken seriously by all the Christians and exercised humbly by the men to whom God entrusts this great charge, it's done under the constant pressure of knowing that a day is coming when the books will be opened and we will give an account. That's why at the end of verse 17, he says, let them, he's now speaking to the congregation as a whole again, let them, the leaders, do this. Let the leaders do this watchful, continual care with joy and not with grief. Literally with joy, not with groaning. What he's telling all of us, what he's telling every Christian is, we have been given the privilege and the responsibility and the ability to make our leaders glad or to make our leaders groan. And then he gives a reason at the end of verse 17. He says, for this would be unprofitable for you. And this is a rhetorical understatement. Uh, I mean, the clear meaning, the clear understanding is not only if we fail to do this thing, if we fail to obey and submit to the word of God spoken and taught by the leaders God has placed above us, not only will we not realize profit, but there will be loss, loss of joy, loss of effectiveness, loss of ministry. And I'll conclude with the words of the Apostle John, in 3 John 4, his third epistle, uh, John said, I love this, he said, I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, that is the greatest joy that John could have. That's the kind of joy the author of Hebrews is speaking of at the end of verse 17. And you've heard me say many, many times that I love Santana Bible Church. I don't deserve this church. One way I could encapsulate it well is because you walk in the truth. 
Now excel yet more. And I say that to you and to me. We have not yet attained the goal. So pure worship, profitable submission. The third and final veracity is prayerful fellowship. This magnificent letter with incredible doctrines around the absolute infinite superiority of Christ began in the great heights of doctrine, especially chapter 1 around Christ. This letter ends on its knees in prayer. Look at verse 18. The author says, pray for us. Pray for us. The late, great R.C. Sproul said, if you trust in yourself, then you will stand by yourself, end quote. The point is, R.C. understood. Paul understood. The author of Hebrew understands. He is wise enough. The author is wise enough and humble enough to ask for prayer. And the mere fact that he appeals to his beloved congregation or this congregation of Jewish believers to pray for him tells us and it confirms that he has taught the truth, preached the truth, is writing the truth in love and compassion. And it's confirmed by his appeal for the readers to pray for him. And he says, pray for us. So he's numbering himself among the leaders. So he's speaking of us, himself, and his companions that are with him, brothers and perhaps sisters with him. And so while we do not know who wrote this letter, we know there's no way Paul wrote it. But other than that, we don't know who wrote the letter. But the original audience knew very well exactly who wrote this letter. And they know, they, they know him and they clearly love him as he knows them and as he clearly loves them. And then continuing on in verse 18, again, giving a reason, he says, for we are sure that we have had a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. You see, the basis, the foundation for his appeal for their prayer is his integrity, is their integrity, the integrity of their present leaders. Same dimension this conduct and conscience uh, behavior and belief it's the same kind of dimension the apostle Paul spoke of as recorded by Luke in Acts 24 verse 16 Paul said I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men beloved whether you're a leader or not a clean conscience a clear conscience is a beautiful wonderful thing when you lay your head down at night you will sleep well with a good clear conscience so again conscience and conduct belief and behavior doctrine and duty both must be of the same fine quality in a qualified leader and the extent is in some things No, in most things. No, in all things, all aspects. Our ministry in the church, our ministry in the workplace, our ministry, men and women in the home, our ministry in the school, etc., and so on. Verse 19, he gives a final appeal. And I urge you all the more to do this. This is the high importance of prayer. All the more. This is a unique word. It's, we, it appears once other in the New Testament back in chapter 2, verse 1, where after this entire first chapter of laying out the great doctrine of Christ, and he gives at the beginning of chapter 2 his first exhortation to apply this wonderful doctrines of grace that are reflected in the Son. In verse 1 he says, we must pay much closer attention 
to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Here, I urge you all the more to do this. So pause for a second. What is grabbing the heart of this author, pastor, preacher? What is grabbing the heart of this shepherd for this flock? Look at what he says. That, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So we know the author was previously with them, but he's in a different location now, very likely in a different country. But the great earnest prayer that he wants them to do is that he would be rejoined with him. By the way, this is the same kind of pastoral sentiment we see the Apostle Paul uh, when he wrote to Philemon. In Philemon verse 22, one chapter, Philemon 22, Paul says, I hope that through your prayers, Philemon, I will be given to you. So what captured the heart of Paul, more to the point here, what captures the heart of the author of Hebrews is the speedy reunion of pastor and people. The beauty of the body of Christ. Of the entire body of Christ, to be sure, every man, woman, and child, uh, every land, tongue, tribe, and nation in the body of Christ, but the beauty of the, this body of Christ, the local church. Paul told the Ephesians, pray on my behalf. He told the Thessalonians, brethren, pray for us. And by way of application, beloved, we need to understand we can't think that our Christian leaders, whomever they might be, even the godly qualified leaders, they don't fly above the events of life. Since Paul, since the mighty author of Hebrews needed prayer, pleads for prayers, we need to pray for our leaders. In conclusion, beloved, I bring to your attention Eric Liddell, the great British Olympian, the greater and better and more to the point British Christian. In, I love, I read his uh, biography, Pure Gold, was one of my favorite ones. And I remember the story of his older sister that was rebuking Eric Liddell, basically saying, all this attention and devotion you're giving to athletics and to running and rugby, you're not being a very good Christian. If you were to be the kind of Christian you should be, <clears throat> you really should focus all that attention and energy just on Bible study. God, she said to him, has made you for himself. Liddell's response was, you're right, God has made me, and God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That is the sacrifice of praise of lips <clears throat> and the sacrifice of praise of a life given to the Lord. You see, Eric Liddell ran through the tape in Paris in 1924 for the gold. More importantly, he ran through the tape in a prison camp in China in 1943 through 1945 for a far more precious reward, the pleasure of his father. <clears throat> As a missionary in China, <clears throat> excuse me, during World War II, <clears throat> Liddell was interned at the Japanese-run Weishan internment camp in China in 1943. He was there with members of the China Inland Mission and a variety of other Christians and even a variety of people that weren't Christians. And he became a leader within the camp. Food, as you can imagine, in a prison camp, and medicine, other supplies were scarce. Uh, there were some rich businessmen that were confined there that got some eggs, and at Liddell's encouragement, they shared them with people. 
Some of the biographers, some of the Christian biographers say that some of the other missionaries and Christians were forming cliques and they were acting selfishly while Liddell busied himself by helping the elderly, teaching Bible classes at the camp school, arranging games and teaching in science to children. He had a special heart towards the youth, so much so that the youth of the camp referred to him as Uncle Eric. He was confined there in 1943. In 1945, two years later, he passed away. He died. He went home to be with the Lord five months before the liberation of the camp from a brain tumor. Uh, it's well understood and thought that that was complicated. Perhaps the brain tumor perhaps was complicated by overworking, but certainly by malnourishment. Uh, one of the Christians said this about his passing. He said, the entire camp especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum Eric's life had left. Another, end quote, another fellow missionary who was with him when he was ushered into the glory of Christ said this, that his final words were a complete surrender. Beloved, that is reflective of the kind of sacrifice of praise that you and I should have. Let's now go to the Lord and pray. Let us pray that since Christ... <clears throat> once for all sacrificed for us. Let us continually offer up our very lives as a sacrifice for his glory, for our joy, for the blessing of one another, and for our gospel witness to a lost and dying world. Please join me. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We praise you as the holy God, the creator of the universe. We praise you, Lord, that there is judgment for sin. We praise you, Lord, that there is no unjust deed that will not go unpunished. And Lord, we praise you and are eternally grateful, Lord Jesus, that you provide a way of escape for anyone that would turn to you, for anyone that would cry out to you and ask for forgiveness to any man, woman, or child, young or old, educated or uneducated, rich or poor, who would cry out and place their faith in you alone and by faith alone trust in you for their salvation, that you would receive them to yourself, make them a new creature, give them a newness of life. We thank you, Lord, that our eternal life began at our conversion, that even now as we are fellowshipping, as we are closing out our time here, as we'll be singing in a moment, we are entering within the veil in heavenly worship. Lord, help us to continue that as we leave here this afternoon, as we go into to our workplaces, neighborhoods, schools, and homes, even this week. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. And all of your redeemed children say, Amen.